Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. This episode of Working is sponsored by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Right now, get $50 toward any mattress purchase by going to casper.com slash working and using the promo code working. And by stamps.com, where you can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. For no risk trial and a special $110 bonus offer, go to stamps.com, click on the microphone, and enter the promo code WORKING. If you love the Working Podcast, listen longer with Slate Plus. Members get bonus segments and interview transcripts from the show. Learn more and start your two-week free trial at slate.com slash working plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Working, Slate's podcast about what people do all day. I'm Adam Davidson. We've had a couple episodes with major superstars in the world of comedy, Stephen Colbert and Adam McKay, and I love those interviews. They were two of our most popular. But it they both got me wondering, what is life like for people in comedy who haven't quite made it yet? And that's what today's interview is about. What's your name and what do you do for a living? Uh, I'm Brooke Van Poplin, and I'm a stand-up comedian here in New York City. So what what does a stand-up do? I mean, okay, so I know, I, I think of a stand-up, I instantly think of a stage and, and someone talking on the stage. What what do you do when you're not on a stage? What's a day-to-day job of a stand-up comic? Yes, um, I think there are a lot of ways to approach what you do with your day when you're a stand-up comedian. Um, I tend to like to keep really, really busy. So um, prior to it 
being my actual living, I worked any means necessary to, to uh, support myself so that I could keep doing comedy to finally hope that it would pan out to be my job. And then slowly I was able to um, transition into making enough money as a comedian and then also supplementing that with um, writing. I mean, writing is the big, the big part of it that I focus on. So yeah, for the past, I would say since 2011, I've been writing for television um, in some form or another for the most part. And then I recently got a job hosting a TV show. So it's funny, one just kind of begets the other, so. Yeah, and I, I want to get to all of that, but I, I want to first understand the stand-up comedy mm-hmm. part itself. So, yeah. so how, how does that work? How, how often are you on, on stage? I'm currently, uh, you know, I would say I do maybe currently only about four shows a week, which to some people go, oh my God, that sounds like a, not, like a lot, but in New York City, I know people who do four shows a night. Um, but the way that my schedule works these days, I prepare for, you know, going up about four times a week, roughly. Sometimes you'll get, um, a week at a club and travel out of town, but the day to day of what you do is basically sit down and think about your material, whether you just, you know, for me personally, um, I journal a lot and then see if little nuggets come out of that, that turn into stories or, you know, just a great tweet or who knows what. And then, you know, you go try it on stage. Like, I'm past the open mic level. Um, so sometimes I'll be booked on a really nice show with high expectations. And so you have to be smart about where you sneak in a new joke. Because if you're not sure how it goes yet. Um, but yeah, so it's a lot of working on material, spying on other people on social media, seeing what they're getting that you're not, you know, and then figuring out how you can get that. Um, and there's a lot of hanging out and camaraderie, too. So that often fills a day or night. I don't know. I, I think it's more like what do stand-up comedians do with their night is a better way to, to put it. And so the working, we're, we're sitting in your apartment. Yeah. Do you, is that your desk? Right, That's my little desk. Yep. In the corner. Um, it's my little pop-up office as I call it. it. It could be a dining room, but, um, no, it's been overtaken by my like messy papers and creative ideas. And can you just show me how yeah. it actually works? Yeah, like what? Yeah, um, so I've got this great ergonomically sort of correct setup for my laptop. Um, so I've been just methodically trying to tape myself and get it a little more solid. So that's that's part of what you do as a stand-up. And then you watch the tape? You watch it and you look where you can. That's the, that's the part I'm bad at is I tape it and then I never want to go back and watch it. So I was like, oh, God, I was there. I lived it. I don't feel like watching it. I mean, it just sounds painful to go back. It is, you know, but if... Like, I will get into this phase when I'm working towards something. Um, And I've got a mailing list uh, that I've kind of started from my new show at Union Hall. So that's like a new thing. And That's a regular show you do? It's monthly, yeah, at Union Hall. Um, It's really fun. It's called The Comfort Zone. And I host it with uh, musician Julian Villard. It's really great. Um, Then, let's see. You know, I've got... (laughs) I've got so many 1099s and W-2s because I do so much, you know, shotgun for higher work. So I keep all that. It's um, very neat, I have to say. When I think stand-up comedian, yeah. I don't think this neat. I'm a crazy neatnik. Um, and so I keep my jokes in Google Docs. So I keep that and I might... Can you show me yeah, what that sure. looks like? <laughs> it's a little bright over here. Um, here's one. It's called Jokes, okay? Um, so it's usually a mishmash of... Uh, ideas like to pitch for an upworthy video i had an idea that i'm talking to them about then i will write out verbatim um new jokes that i'm working on 
these are the new ones. So it almost starts out kind of like a script that I just roughly sort of memorize the bullet points till I get really good at the joke. Um, and then I copy and paste tweets that did really well and I drop them into this um, <laughs> document because sometimes when you tweet, it's a whole different realm and you realize, oh, I'm going to actually put this into a document and write around it to see if it would fit into my stand-up act. So you just send out tweet jokes and then if they're retweeted and favorited you think okay that hit something yeah even if it's not a popular one but it, it's something that I really liked and, and realized that I'm like oh I could actually flesh this out into like the way I would tell a joke which would be like a two or three minute story with a bunch of punches so. gotcha yeah. and, and so when you say you write a joke mm-hmm. it's like a dialogue between sitting here and typing and being on set and then coming back and typing it some more Is that- yeah like if, if a joke I like to figure stuff out um, on stage, if I'm given the time and the luxury, like if the crowd's on my side, I might play with them some more and work. Like the best way to put it is like getting the joke like on its feet. So I play with it and I experiment. If I if it's not going well, just by talking it out and improvising for a couple shows in a row, then I bring it back and I fix it. Like by actually sitting down writing. So so you have the the four nights a week where you're performing, mm-hmm. and then you set. Walk me through a performing day, like how, how those days go. Um, probably after you go, I'll take a minute to check in um, and just kind of decide. Because they, they'll tell you in advance it's probably going to be about a 10-minute set tonight. Right now I've zeroed in on what my new funny 10 minutes feels like. So I usually just kind of like decide on it, look it over. I Actually, because last night I performed and I was like, this one joke is um, i got to fix it. Like it's, I just either keep or either need to look at it, read it and commit it to memory because I keep forgetting a few pieces. So, and I'll improvise and it's just not as funny as when I say the words that I intended to. So I have to get this one joke (laughs) kind of back on track, if that makes sense. Um, So yeah, there were these two jokes that I wanted to fix and then try and plug it back into this 10 minute set again. So I've just been running the same 10 minutes for the past six weeks, maybe. So tonight you're going to you're going to try and bring that another step forward and then what 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 happens with that 10 minutes? I know. It's always so I've been doing this 12 years and uh I should be headlining more than I do. It's just I I work in television and I stay local to New York City and so a lot of these um clubs that I really miss and I enjoy performing at want you to be there usually like a Wednesday through Sunday commitment. Sometimes you can get the great just the Friday Saturday show but I'd like to get back into that the reason you work on a new 10 minutes is to just keep having a better and better hour-long headlining set um but so a headliner is someone who does a whole hour yeah yeah typically um in a club setting it would go host feature and then headliner and host is usually 10 minutes feature is 20 to 25 and the headliner is 45 to 75 depending on how long the club lets you go I've heard the phrase middle, I middled. That's, feature. That's featuring, yep. Mm-hmm. And middling is the sweet spot because you get to show up, do, like just be amazing for 20 minutes, and then you can leave if you don't feel like staying. Like the host has to stay and thank everyone after it's over. Um, middling's a great, great place to be. Headlining's, um, yeah, I, I think it takes a certain amount of um, effort and credibility and funniness, and you really have to deliver. It's a, it's a high-pressure situation. And how often do you headline a year? Um, right now, only a few times a year. And it's funny because 
there are different levels. You know, it's if you're last on a show, the big joke is in New York, they're like, and our headliner, <laughs> and you're doing 10 minutes like everybody else. So if it was that kind of headlining, I headline all the time. Working is sponsored by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. With Casper, you get an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. You'll pay $500 for a twin-size mattress and $950 for a king-size model, well under the average cost in the industry. A Casper mattress has just the right sink and just the right bounce, thanks to two technologies, latex foam and memory foam, that work together for better nights and brighter days. With a risk-free trial, you can try sleeping on a Casper mattress for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. Right now, get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash working and using the promo code working. That's casper.com slash working and use the promo code working. So um, do you mind giving me just a kind of a range? You don't have to tell me exactly, but how much you get paid for these different levels of gigs from just being one of many performers in Gowanus to being the headliner um, at a, on, a, on a club you're touring for? Right. Well, so it could go from, you know, getting $20 um, for like a fun bar show in Brooklyn, anywhere from 20 to 50 depending on what they draw and how many comedians are on the lineup. And is that like a share of the door? Or? Yep. These are like a share of the door type shows at like Littlefield or Union Hall or the Bell House. Um, then actual comedy clubs, you get paid no matter what, no matter like like it's a spot pay. And so that's kind of a different system where, you know, if it's a weeknight, it's like $25 for a 15-minute set. Some places go up to 40 If you're headlining, headlining, it's more like it's what you can draw. Your name kind of depends. So, like, some people who are really big do, like, a door deal, and they might make $10,000 over a weekend. Someone at my level, I'd be lucky to make you know, as a headliner, depending on how many nights, you know, around a thousand colleges, completely different colleges are like, you know, fly in, do 40 minutes and get $1,500, you know, and then they fly you back. Um, corporate gigs, same deal. Um, it just depends on where the money's coming from and how, like I've done certain festivals, certain theaters where the money's coming from someone else. And those thousand dollars for 10 minutes. Okay. So let's talk about the other ways you make a living. Yeah. So um, you've been talking about this TV show. What's, what's the TV show? Yeah, sorry. I'm like, the TV show. It's, um, it's a new one on True TV called Hack My Life. And I co-host it with the lovely Kevin Pereira. And basically we take all the life hacks on the internet and we put them to the test and tell you if they work. If they're a pile of, you know, pile of trash or if they're actually useful. So we basically rate them. And uh, try them out in a funny way. And it's very comedically driven, and it's a very, like, brain candy-ish, easy-to-digest, fast-paced show. Was it your idea, or were you hired to do it? This is something that I auditioned for, and I got, hallelujah, that never happens. I did it. And and so that, and you don't have to tell me how much, how much you make, but that that's a right. more um, steady, and I'm assuming... Right. Um, you're not making network TV money, but you're making it, – it's more solid than the club stuff you were talking about. Yes. Um, you know, and it's it just all depends what you want to do and where you want to go. I, I've always wanted to move into television regardless. Stand-up, I love. I feel like the path for me will be like some bigger things hopefully will come through writing and being on camera, which would then – 
draw people to see me in a club. Right now, working at a level without something bigger happening, it's, it's hard to be a draw. You have to work so consistently hard, do all the festivals all the time, be at all the top clubs for people to know that you are a comedian that they need to carve out time to see. And I commend people who do that. That's one way to do it. The other way to do it is get really popular through something else you like. And then people want to come see you. And luckily, I've done this for 12 years. So I know what I'm doing. And uh, another big choice, I would think, is New York or L.A. or staying in Chicago. Was that I mean, Chicago's a major comedy town, right? Chicago is just absolutely the best. I mean, I've thought many times that I'd like to just go back for a month, get like an Airbnb or stay with a friend and just try and get on as many comedy shows. Because it's very, it's a great place to get really, really sharp under the radar because there's so much industry here in New York and L.A. And sometimes they can watch you have growing pains because you're just in the public eye. Like you're having a show where you're just trying stuff out and you're like, oh great, the booker for so-and-so is here and now they think I suck. You know, whereas Chicago and Austin, Texas is my other favorite place to go, duck down for a little bit, work on my act, and then bring it back, (laughs) you know, or vice versa. When you go to L.A., people treat you like you're special for a couple weeks because they haven't, you know, been treated to you before. They don't see you. You're not a regular. The minute you say you move there, they're like, ah, whatever, you know, get in line with the rest of us. Why'd you pick New York over L.A.? I don't know. New York picked me. <laughs> I'm not sure. I It was so exciting. I, I was just really intrigued um, by a lot of ladies who I thought were super funny standouts who were doing, like I saw them on Comedy Central's show Premium Blend, probably back in 05 or something like that. And I was like, I want to like go be where these like really inspiring women do comedy and I'm like, what do they do? Because I was looking in my future, and I was like, they're all funny, and they're all in New York. And so I just started visiting and trying to get on whatever shows I could, made a few friends, then started coming to visit once a month. Um, and people thought I lived here. I, I got called in for an audition because someone thought I was a New Yorker because I'd been here so much. And um, I came home for the audition and canceled my flight home and uh, just had my roommate mail me some boxes of stuff from Chicago. She was not happy about that, but I had found someone to take my room in the meantime. But um, it's just something about the energy. My life felt like it was um, coming to a nice end in Chicago for reasons that we can talk about, you know, some other time. I was like, I lost my job. I was going through a divorce. And I was like, you know what, Chicago? New York's looking pretty sparkling and exciting right now. <laughs> I can reinvent and hide in this city. I've been reading that now is the time for women comics. Is that a real thing or is that just a media thing? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very, I have such mixed feelings about it all. But all I can say is I know so many women who've been phenomenal for the entire time it's just a matter of who gets attention who gets the power and I think we're seeing a trend where people who are really kick-ass are moving forward in the sense like Amy Poehler championing Broad City and making this like really fun show and being an executive producer on it and then now being someone who's just going to produce more shows and I think if Amy Poehler is a producer the same way Tina Fey is and the same way like when you get women in these prominent power positions you're just going to see the landscape change and you feel that you're you're getting more opportunities or just your the receptiveness is is stronger absolutely um I've certainly been met with 
you know, still some frustrating. I mean, the internet's just a terrible place, you know. But that's just trolls. It's just saying terrible things towards women. Like, you know, you shouldn't even be blah, 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 doing comedy. You suck. Like, you know, it's just so mean. They will say that to anyone, though, male or female. But you can turn in a a script that is 100% um, gender neutral. It's got male and female characters. No one's the lead. It's a comedy. But if they find out it's written by two females, it gets filed like rom-com or like chick flick or something like that. And you're just like, no, it was written by two ladies. How many men write dialogue for women? And I don't, they don't get met with the same, you know, sort of, um, just sort of disdain. So there are these moments when you have to course correct and be like, no, it's, it's not a lady-driven uh, you know, script. It was written by two women and directed by a woman. And it stars two men and two women who are like equal across the board. So you have moments like that where you're just like, wow, okay. It's just eye opening. Talk about writing in general. You said, you know, you, you have, and you got to, yeah, uh, you have, uh, you mentioned you, you sort of have these two bigger goals of, yeah. of being more on. TV and movies as, as a performer, but then also writing. So t- talk about that writing. Um, the writing is, it's a lonely, lonely life uh, because you have to make the content. No one, no one's going to do it for you. So, and there's no handholding. And so there's a lot of self-doubt while you sit and write these things. You know, you start out by writing like a spec script or your own original. So it's always good to have like a 30-minute comedy in your pocket. I got real bold and I wrote a 60-minute dramedy. Because that's what I like. You know, they tell you write what you like. And I'm not a slapstick sitcom person. I just am not. And so I was always like, I don't know what to do. And so I've just jumped in terms of my first venture into writing. That's what I wanted, a dark comedy and dealt with some heavy issues. And so, you know, it's actually being pitched around, which is exciting. Um, But who knows what will happen? It's just ballsy. I guess that's the best way to put it. This episode of Working is sponsored by Stamps.com. These days, you can get practically everything on demand, like this podcast. So why are you still dealing with the limited hours at the post office when you can get postage on demand with Stamps.com? With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. Right now, use our promo code WORKING for this special offer, a no-risk trial, plus a $110 bonus offer, which includes $55 in free postage. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and enter working. Stamps.com, enter working. And then you do other writing, like web writing. Can you talk about that? Or you don't do that anymore? Um, if, like, the, the, the web writing is um, it's kind of like as I get a, approached here and there. Like, if someone's like, we'd like for you to weigh in, um, could you write, you know, a thousand-word essay or something like that? Or... You know, that could, I know a lot of comedians love to contribute to, um, like, Exo Jane. Uh, you can write about comedy for Split Cider or, you know, BuzzFeed has really great stuff. Um, I veer more into right now because I'm on a show about life hacks. I'm writing things for, like, Marie Claire online. But generally, no. What I like to do is take my personal essays and, like, post them on Tumblr. Because um, I'd love to start putting all my essays together into potential book proposal just because I've been sitting on them for so long and I love them and they're great there's a sort of awful phrase these days although I find myself using it a lot the personal brand and it, it seems like you're 
you have to be sort of conscious about mm-hmm. that. Is that? I think you absolutely, you, it's a very intangible thing. All I can say is you know when someone has figured out their brand. It's a very amorphous thing, but you're kind of like, oh, like they have zeroed in on something and everyone's getting it, you know? So, I mean, my brand, whatever that is, it might be someone who does everything, you know, (laughs) where other people's brand is like, it's just like dark, you know, dark comedy, like dark, dry, very abrupt, you know, type one-liner, funny stuff. Like they maintain a social media presence and they do not ever give any clues of being a real human. People like that impress me. I'm a very relatable, open person. So I don't have a persona. Which is is probably a human advantage, but a commercial disadvantage is that? Absolutely. You know, and I've always struggled with that where I was like, I don't have a gimmick. And, And I don't mean to use gimmick as a word to take away anything from other people, but like, I wish I had a gimmick. It has worked like you wouldn't believe for some people, you know, unbelievable to me. And their, ta- their talent matches it, which is totally great. But I'm also always like, man, you know, like I just don't have like the thing. Because bookers and agents and TV, they like to be like, she's the blah, blah, blah. And they're like, oh, we need one of those, you know. It's interesting. Like um, like I definitely saw, because I, I was part of Last Comic Standing last year. for, And that is like the ultimate, someone wanting to boil you down to your essence. And I was like, nope, this is not for me. This was a huge mistake. Because you could tell for TV and for casting, they're like, this is the gay bipolar comedian. Because that was her act. She's like, I'm, you know, openly gay and I'm bipolar and managing it. And so, boom, the gay bipolar comedian. And you're like, ah, oh, shit. I was like, I don't, uh, yeah, I'm just going to tell a mishmash of jokes and I'm just, I'm just a comedian trying stuff. How about that? You know, and. So it's always been hard to be like, what is my thing? I used to harp on the Midwestern thing, but it, I don't know. It's just, I've, I've never wanted to have a thing. I don't know. I mean, it's not, like just being funny in and of itself in a reliable way sounds really, really hard. And then, but then also having to think like, how do I be funny, but in a way that's consistently on some kind of message and... Right. And if that doesn't come naturally, that that just seems really hard. Absolutely. Like when I, uh, during my single years, which I was like, I think I was funnier (laughs) because I was pissed. And people relate with the eternal struggle of being single. And, you know, I'd come out of the gates and it was just like an ace in the hole every time. I'd be like, so I just broke up with my boyfriend. And everyone would be like, and I'd be like, in 1998. And then, you know, and it's just a, it's like the dumbest little one-liner, but then you could go into a whole string of jokes about being a lonely loser looking for love, and people adore and relate to that stuff. And so I lied for a while, even though I was in a happy relationship. I was like, I don't know, this material's been working for me. And it finally just didn't feel true because I like to be honest about where I'm at and what's happening. So I've moved away from relationships for a little bit into other territories, but now I've been in a relationship for two years And we're annoying each other. So that's like I'm back in a relatable place. Like no one wants to hear about your honeymoon, you know, phase where you're like, I'm just really happy. It's nonstop sex. I lost some weight because I'm just full of endorphins and happy. Like no one wants to hear that. But now that I can relate to other people in relationships who like get annoyed with their boyfriend or vice versa, 
it, it's been a really fertile ground for me to go there. Because, I mean, ultimately, when you have kids and can make fun of them, <laughs> you know, like Louis C.K. is the best at that, his challenges of fatherhood, it's amazing. People, it's very cathartic for people. So when I don't have my cathartic thing, I feel really lost. Um, and what, what can you kind of walk me through what, what, what you're hoping for the next few years? Like, what, what are your goals? Um, it's, it's interesting. I get very, uh, I'm a, I'm a, an idea machine with uh, a little bit of a broken follow through gear, you know, but I have successfully completed some things that I told myself, like, you have to, like, this is stupid. So I wrote a web series that's, um, I'm very proud of, and it's had one season out, um, for about a month or so now, and it's called seeing other people. And we're starting to write season two. We just love it. It's stars us. We write it. My um, comedy partner, Julia Rossi. Uh, I got my scripts written. I would love to basically move into the realm of working on a scripted television show or possibly sell one. And I'm okay being a writer, but it'd be fun if, if I could move into um, like a little character role every once in a while. That would just be the sweet spot for me. Yeah, there, it's my dad's an actor and it's – these industries, these fields where it's there's a a huge range of possible outcomes, and and where you probably have friends who have achieved you know who are extremely wealthy and famous, it's not maybe entirely clear to you how, how <laughs> right how that happened, you know, and why it didn't happen to you, and 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 so like I know you know with my dad like you know there are times he thought maybe I'm going to be a big movie star, and then there were other you know and. He's now 78. He's still working, but he, I, f- I think he's probably not going to be a big movie star, but he's had a solid career and a career to be happy about. And, um, and you know, I, my hunch is most people, by the time they're 25 or 30, have a reasonable expectation within 20% of what their income will be for the rest of their life. And for you, it's it really could be a huge range from the very good to the maybe not so good. Right. It's it's frightening. Um I feel positive because I I do think I'm on the right track. Sometimes it's a matter just of like the one thing has to catch. And then I've just seen the snowball effect for so many people. It's very real. The minute one person gets a little popular, everyone wants to know about them. You know, everyone wants to hear from them. And um, it's very good to be armed with content that you're ready. You know, if people like, oh, I love you on this show or I love you because of this lovely, fun podcast or whatever – it's good to have your material ready to go, something to show for it. And, um, you know, so it's interesting. You sit here thinking, well, all right, I could continue to survive in New York comfortably. Or I could own two homes and, you know, be making a couple million. You don't, you don't know. And I like to stay really positive. I believe that as long as I'm doing what makes me happy, it'll you know, it'll work out. But. Yeah, there's a lot of, oof, there's not a big safety net for what I do. So I once did this thing on the radio about my dad where I said I was at Sundance with him this 20 years ago when he had a movie at Sundance. And that was one of those moments where we thought, oh, maybe, maybe this yeah, is the, and, and I remember just in, in this, I remember just thinking, I, I wish he could be happy, you know, because he's had what for you is sounds like the the fallback not the goal which is 
you know, he's made a solid living. He's lived in New York. He's done a lot of creative stuff, um, but he hasn't made it big. And I just remember wishing like he could feel like that's enough, which I think he does now. But at yeah. that moment at Sundance, I felt like the wanting the big thing made the having what he had not feel good enough. I, I hate hearing that. And it's, it's a hard, and it makes me sad because it's, it's, it's a hard thing to manage when you do know that these like wild levels of like fame and money and success can catch on. And sometimes you're like, I don't think they were that great, you know? And it's like, there's just no rhyme or reason to why it does happen for some people or doesn't happen for others. But um, a big part of staying mentally healthy is to take inventory of the successes you have had. Like I'm pretty good about every six months or so if I'm feeling like ungrateful for you know, I, I stop and be like, you um, waited tables at brunch, your most hated meal. <laughs> like, you were a brunch server. And um, you get to be on TV now. Like, there's something really great about slapping yourself in the face, reality check, and then being like, so be thankful where you're at right now. Don't don't crap on it. Because th- there's always a temptation to be like, yeah, this is okay, but it's not good enough. And then you don't do a good job with the current gig you have. And then they're like, you're fired, you know? And so it's it's managing happiness now, which I sound like a crazy self-help guru right now, but then setting measurable goals, you know? And then going back to the drawing board, if you're not like making some steps after a certain amount of time being like, I either got to rethink this or I have to be bolder or maybe I'm crazy, you know? I don't know. Maybe this isn't for me. So, but I haven't gotten there yet. I, I feel like I'm just kind of um, decided to work smarter, not harder. That's sort of my, because I've created 12 years worth of content that is only half written in many ways. And it's sort of like, why don't you slow down and go back to all this awesome stuff you've generated and flesh it out and make it good. I blow my own mind when I go back and look at Google Docs from 2011. I was like, who's that talented lady, you know? And I gave up on it a couple years ago. And so it's – that's how – I don't know if that answers any question. But, um, man, I just – it's – it's. I just – I have empathy. And, you know, I sympathize with how you're – how you perceive your dad to feel sometimes because – I think anyone, especially in the performing arts, can suffer from that. And it can make you crazy if you don't kind of check it, you know? But, um, (laughs) yeah, but the biggest thing too, and this is how I feel, I've got a little bit of that starving artist thing where I've decided I don't want to starve anymore, but, um, I do need to do the things that make me really happy. I cry sometimes when I see like other people do, like when you're like, wow, that person is exactly where they're meant to be. And it makes me like, whether I see like musicals or even like really good bands or it just where you're like, wow, that is like art going through the appropriate vessel. And I get really overwhelmed and excited and it always stirs something up in me that's like, just make sure that you're always doing something that means a lot to you and like represents my core values because you can take a lot of jobs that are just jobs where there's nothing wrong with that, but you're like, this isn't who I am. And you can get very wrapped up into saying yes to the money. Where And, and it's like, whereas if you took a chance and did something that really was who you are, you can make the millions. So, that, you know, I kind of, if you understand, I think that makes sense, right? Yeah. Some people just chase that money. And I don't blame them. But are you happy? You know, I don't know. So it's, it's tough. 
Thank you for listening. I'm Adam Davidson. I write a column called On Money for the New York Times Magazine, and I'm also the co-founder of NPR's Planet Money. I would like to thank a bunch of people for today's episode. Alexis Diao is our phenomenal producer. Joel Meyer is managing producer of Slate Podcasts, and Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. We'll probably have to do a podcast one day just explaining what all those different types of producers do. Uh, we've put links at slate.com slash working to Brooke Van Poplin's own website, some videos of her work. Um, I would spell her name, but it's a long name. So I would just recommend go to slate.com slash working and you can find a link to all of that stuff. I'm Mike Pesca, host of Slate's The Gist podcast, a news show served daily. Last week, I spoke with Barney Frank. The former congressman is often called feisty acerbic, sometimes even bullying. So I asked him, what's the one zinger he'd love to take back? I guess it was with Michael Dukakis. Uh, he would take the subway to work as governor. And someone said to me when I was very angry at him, don't you admire him for taking the subway to work? And I said, well, I, I have no objection to his taking the subway to work. I just wish he didn't get off at the state house." Zing! You can subscribe to The Gist in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.